So just to begin, um, if you want to give an introduction to yourself, to your work, and then we can go from there. Yeah. So um, my name is Anikayo Desomtochuku. I'm a world liberation activist in Nigeria. Uh, my work uh, focuses um, mostly on, you know, socialists uh, organizing and where organizing particularly, especially in terms of uh, organizing mutual aid for, uh, you know, queer Nigerians and kind of providing community resources to help counter state violence on queer people in Nigeria. So that's the general of it. Um, the Central Committee Chair of the Queer Union for Economic and Social Transformation, which is a Pan-Africanist, abolitionist, and revolutionary socialist uh, queer collective in Nigeria. I'm also a member of the Socialist Workers and Youth League, which uh, is also is a socialist organization. It's, it's, a gen, it's not a queer organization. So those are the organizations I currently am affiliated with at the moment. Yes. Awesome. And uh, just to kind of continue from that, um, I'm really curious, uh, kind of came into your work by listening to your interview on uh, Millennials Are Killing Capitalism, where you talked about your role in uh, the NSARS movement and the protest around um, police brutality in Nigeria. So I'm curious if you can go, we can kind of begin with that, um, about your experience in the, the NSARS movement uh, about opposing police brutality uh, in Nigeria and kind of the lessons that that helped uh, inform uh, with respect to your other activism. Yeah, um, so the the answers <laughs> the answers thing was it was a bit crazy because you know um, we were trying to end SARS. So SARS is like a special police unit, like the special anti-robbery squad that is you know known to basically uh, extort and kill people and you know. They're very brutal. And so we are trying to end that. And I did, I was glad to see the, the protest kind of balloon from there to become more about, you know, the structural uh, inadequacies of the current administration of the, our current system. I you know because people are now calling for, you know, things like the abolition of the Senate and, you know, jobs and things like that. And it, 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 it was, wild because we as you know we had uh a lot of backlash as queer protesters for kind of specifically protesting brutality as queer protesters so there was this you know uh expectation that you know we should just protest as anti-police protesters that we shouldn't you know like specify that we are queer and I, I remember receiving so much hatred, so much like, I, I, I received so many death threats and people were like, oh, if we see you in the protest, we're going to kill you. We're going to like beat you up and hand you to the police. And, you know, it's it, it kind of, um, it's it kind of showed a lot how, you know, you, we, we can't really, you know, just like Lenny said, there can't be a revolution without revolutionary theory. People don't have that ideological fiber or the ideological clarity to actually wage a revolutionary struggle or, you know, where we are currently, the Nigerian consciousness at this time. And I, I, I feel like that really showed in how the protests ended up because we weren't prepared for, you know, the, the kind of violence with which the Nigerian government responded, which, you know, come to think of it, we should have, because this is our government. We know for a fact that they always resort to violence to crush any sort of, any sort of um, dissent. We've seen it, you know, with Odi, the Odi massacre. We've seen it with the constant uh, 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 raiding of communities that the Nigerian army does 
So we, we, we have a history of that and we should have been prepared, but we weren't. And I feel like, again, it goes back to show how ideologically you know, deficient the protests were. And so I think that from the protests, I've, there's just that kind of um, understanding that we have to move past youth ideology. We have to move past the whole, you know, we need young people ideology and talk about what ideological, um, you know, uh, a message in what ideological uh, uh, structures is necessary for us to wage that fight to actually defeat what we are going up against. Because again, the state is very, very organized. It's, 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 it may look like they don't know what they're doing, and yes, they don't to a very large extent, but in terms of securing their continued hegemony, they are very, you know, they do know, they know how to deploy violence to maintain their power. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's really fascinating. And I think a lot of people in the US came to know about NSARS when, you know, it was kind of applying the, an international uh, focus of, of in 2020, the Black Lives Matter movement. But it's also, I think, important to emphasize that the problems in Nigeria of the NSARS movement had been going on, um, like the movement against SARS and this particular police unit is not just against um, like this kind of focalized police brutality, but as you're talking about, it's against state corruption, neo-colonialism, um, and continued uh, racial capitalism in Nigeria. So I wonder if you want to talk more about that, of like how the movement made these more radical connections to neo-colonialism, corruption, um, and the other structural problems beyond just the individual issue of police brutality. Yeah, so um, the protests happened at, you know, very, let's say, opportune time, because a lot of things were going wrong at that time. Like, at the moment, we've, you know, just been going through the, we've just been coming out of um, national lockdowns, you know, that are imposed without any material support being given to people most of Nigerian workers are in the informal sector. They don't, they don't have any like a structured wage or whatever. So they, they literally have to go out and make what they'll eat day to day. And that lockdown was imposed without any kind of plan. You know, the government said that they were distributing uh, food, they were distributing aid, but we never saw it. So most of the aid was was basically stolen by government contractors, by government officials, etc. So, and I, so that was one. Two, the ASU uh, uh, academic staff union of universities was on strike at that moment, and they've been on strike for months. They were they went on strike just you know about the beginning of the year. So around, I think, April, I might be wrong, but I think around April they went on strike and they've been on strike from then till, you know, around October when the protests took off. So there have been a long university strike. So these are all the things that we are basically piling up. Obviously, Nigeria's un youth unemployment is through the roof. And, you know, it, it, it didn't take much for people to look at you know police brutality and realize that you know this this outpouring of discontent was not it couldn't just be about police killings it couldn't just be about police brutality it was at, at the very core of it was basically the dehumanizing condition that Nigerians had to exist under and so they started drawing you know parallels to our healthcare system our education system to the looting that was happening in our national parliament and in the government. I mean, we literally had the national parliament uh, uh, approve uh, funding like to the tune of billions to renovate like the National Assembly building. These same people cut health, uh, primary healthcare funding, they cut education funding. And so, I mean, people were feeling the brunt of that. We had fuel hikes on the rise. We had, um, you know, electricity tariffs, which by the way, we are literally 
conditions for a World Bank loan, literally imposed conditions for a World Bank loan. And so people, we yeah, are very, very much like, you know, this, I mean, even, even when there wasn't that connection to, you know, we are basically suffering a condition imposed by international financial institutions, they still understood that this particular thing that was happening, you know, it's, it doesn't benefit anybody but the people that are currently in power. So they it immediately turned from that. People were calling for the president to resign. They are calling for the police chiefs to be fired. They are calling for you know, a lot of structural changes to be put in place to address security issues, to address food scarcity, to address, you know, the our educational educational system. So, you know, that I, I feel like that's why it was so easy for us to basically move from, you know, end police brutality to end bad governance to Buhari resign and so on. It was an incredible movement and, and it was really inspiring to observe um, from the US and see the connections that were being made internationally against police brutality for international abolition, but also especially for international uh, action against uh, the, the corruption and, uh, and, and you know, connecting it to capitalism, uh, which many of the protesters did. And there was a theoretical effort to do that as well. So I, I would love to talk more about that in particular of how to begin how you as a Marxist connect uh, Marxism and, and theories of socialism to the conditions of Nigeria, to the problems of, of homophobia and police brutality, uh, neo-colonialism within Nigeria. And then also just to uh, your stance as a Pan-Africanist, how you connect Marxism to a Pan-African socialism. Yeah, so, um... I feel like, or I know for a fact, that the legal um, legal framework of queerphobia in Nigeria was introduced by the British colonial administration. And not only was this introduced by the uh, British colonial administration, the uh, 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 carceral system under which it operates was also introduced by the British colonial administration. So, you know, Nigeria is a country that has so many, you know, different tribes within it. For some tribes, queerness was not an event. It was not something that was shocking to anybody. For some, queerness was a neutral thing that nobody like, you know. And then there are some that also didn't really, that weren't accepting of queerness even before the advent of colonialism. But in none of these communities did you have any mechanism for incarcerating poor people. That just literally did not exist. The same thing with you know the legal framework. So it, it, it happened that it, it it is such a way that the colonial system has given homophobic society the basically the power to enforce homophobia. So it's in such a and that's why I, you can't help but draw a line between queer liberation and decolonization because not only are we operating under colonial uh, colonial gender systems, not only are we operating under a you know a system of totalitarianism that says yes, this not only is this what is accepted or what is um, expected, but if you deviate from this, you will be punished with jail, you will be physically attacked by your own community, you will be demonized. So, for us to actually look back and say, how, how do we move from this? How do we move from this place to a, to a place where we are looking at, you know, a, a, a system that humanizes us more, that doesn't always resort to, you know, jailing people as a solution to societal problems, a system that even reassesses what it defines as problems to begin with, because the 
the gender systems of a lot of African communities, even when they weren't um, positive to um, queer people, to queer presentation, it just did not have any sort of mechanisms for punishing, you know, queerness. And so I feel like we have to kind of have that conversation of reclamation of asking ourselves, you know, how did we get here? How did we convince ourselves that, you know, we, we, we need a society where, you know, men have to uh, fit into a particular caste and women have to fit into a particular caste. And that's just the only two options of existence as a human being. How did we arrive here? Who does this system serve? Because we, we have a situation where the people in power are using phobia to entrench their power. We are basically, us poor people in Africa, we are basically, you know, bones, low-hanging fruits that the, the uh, ruling class just throws to the general public. You know, whenever there a particular, you know, uh, uh, party or ruling class, or faction of that particular ruling class is in hot water when they have their approval ratings plummeting because of you know World Bank directed reforms and things like that. They reach so easily to quephobia, and it helps them to continue in that way. Quephobia basically helps to keep Africa in a neo-colonial situation because only move to basically fight, um, any move to basically fight our way towards the colonization, any move to basically fight our way towards, you know, basically breaking away from all these institutions that are forcing neoliberalization on our societies is basically arrested with where phobia being deployed, with cis heteronormativity being like reached out to as a pillar to keep the new colony in place. And so during the NSAS, um, you know, protests, we, we really tried because to be very honest, there were a lot of people, especially in uh, uh, people that were, you know, had, um, how should I say this? Um, bigger platforms on social media that we aren't really approaching this protest from you know a colonial perspective people that wanted oh give the, the police more training so that they, they, they will know how to behave give them like more money to invest in surveillance so that they don't have to come and like stand on the streets you get that kind of thing and we, we really tried to you know also create an ideological alternative for people who, you know, don't really buy into this, but don't know, you know, what they're, they're buying. They know they don't like the police, but they also need to know, you know, how, what are the resources I need to understand the colonial history of the Nigerian police force, to understand how this particular force was imposed not for safety or, you know, whatever other like BS reason that is given, but just to suppress any moves towards liberation. So that was basically like what we really tried to do because again, when we talk of, when we talk of, you know, the liberation struggle in Nigeria, you can't talk about liberation struggle in Nigeria whether during pre-colonial times, whether during, you know, the, uh, Whatever republic, whether it's the first republic, the second republic, the third, this current republic, whether it's any of the military regimes, that you don't talk about the role of the police in maintaining whatever, you know, institution of, of uh, whatever, like, uh, a current regime that is the representatives of global capitalism in Nigeria. That has always been their role, always. If we are talking of, let's say, the... 2012 um, Occupy Nigeria protests that happened after the removal, after the uh, Jonathan's removal of force subsidy. It was the police that was deployed immediately to, you know, subdue 
people that were protesting. Even we saw it even during the Enters protest, the way the violence with which the police is going to defend, like with their everything to defend the current system, to defend any call for even the slightest reforms, you know, to the system that we currently have. So we, we you know, we, we needed to start having that conversation and start having people like, you know, having the space within the, pro, the, the protests to unlearn all the socialization of, oh, we need the police, oh, the police keeps us safe, oh, the police is your friend and all those things. So, yeah. That was that was a very comprehensive answer, and um, on that, I'm I'm curious to learn more about how you, in the movement, uh, were you know, uh, combating this kind of liberal uh, you know takeover potentially of the movement or a kind of uh, de-radicalizing of the movement uh, by people who wanted to limit the you know the the desires of the movement to just simply abolishing SARS as a unit or as you were talking about reforming it in some particular way. So how are you kind of opposing this reformism? How are you asserting more radical message? And what was, you know, uh, reverberating with, with Nigerians to say this more radical message about economic, uh, you know, empowerment and uh, anti-colonialism as well? Yeah, um, so during the, um, and South protests, I, I and other comrades started the Equal um, Union for Economic and Social Transformation just because, you know, number one, we needed to have some sort of structure to support queer protesters that are, you know, under a lot of attack and a lot of pressure to either lead protests or to basically moderate their message into something that isn't really, like, um, you know, challenging to the system. So, you know, in terms of like, oh, L uh, homosexuality is a crime. Let's not protest things that are crimes. Let's keep up because there was a lot of like liberalism that was going on. There was a lot of, you know, don't, we, we don't want any irresponsible people in the protest. We don't want any people that are going to smoke in the protest. We don't want any people that are going to talk about like anything else in the get. And so it was like, we really needed to, first of all, have some sort of base to basically support each other and provide a platform to amplify the voices of more radical speakers. I mean, from a queer perspective, from you know, a queer liberation perspective, we should be talking more about the arming the police than we should be talking about giving them psychological tests or you know, better training or whatever. But I don't care if you know the policeman is going to search my phone to find like incriminating evidence of me is polite to me. I don't care if I mean that. I don't care if they're going to, you know, call me star <laughs> while they're like literally wave a gun in my face. I literally don't care. I want them off my streets. I want their guns taken from them. I want to live, you know, in safety. I don't want to live in constant fear. Like I walk down my street and literally on the corner, up, you know, police people armed. Like it's literally an occupation or something like that. And so we... Needed, we, we needed to like you know use our platforms amplify you know more radical voices especially in terms of you know drawing a connection a global connection to the situation in nigeria drawing a connection to the uh, neoliberal reforms to you know institutions like the world bank and shows like the international monetary fund that literally you know sell these things, hold them over our heads in order to give us or give our government uh, 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 any kind of loans that they need to fund the budget. So we need to draw that. We also need to kind of have the conversation on why sanctions are not the solution because there were also a lot of people that wanted like sanctions on the government or sanctions on like the police chiefs and, you know, the people that are in the administration and you know there was a lot of pushback against the those like calls for sanctions because we managed to you know help create 
that sort of alternative voice to say that, you know, look, we shouldn't even be calling on countries like America, literally, like this is, you know, goes contrary to the principles of solidarity that literally our brothers, our siblings are in America, like fighting the police, and we are calling on the American government to <laughs> basically come and like wave one their finger at our own government, like literally their own people, our own people there are fighting their own government. Why are we trying to basically change this government is going to do anything for us? And so there was that. There was also the, the, the discussion on how, you know, harmful sanctions are, because a lot of people don't really understand the extent of the harm that sanctions cause, especially when the sanctions are individual. Like when you, let's say, sanction, for instance, the vice president of the country, in an individual sanction, people don't really see that or don't really understand the ramifications for the entire country. I mean, that particular vice president can no longer travel to discuss with any other country in, let's say, the sanctioning country. They can't make uh, a lot of business transactions that are going to like benefit, like a lot of things, a lot of doors are shut. And in the end, it's not going to affect those particular people. It's going to affect the poorest. They're going to be the people that end up being pushed further into poverty. And at the same time, we also have to have the discussion on imperialism, because what even is the logic that says countries like the United States and the United Kingdom has any rights to be given to impose any sanction on our country? Like, why do we want them to have that position at all? So those are the kind of conversations we try to foster, because a lot of you know these big platforms, people that had like you know all these. Um, Harvard Kennedy, <laughs> like fellows and the rest, and Chatham House, uh, they really wanted to kind of bring that like liberal mindset to this, the movement. And again, to, to an extent, it's also part of the reason why we, we didn't really plan well ahead, because there was a lot of fetishization of, oh, we don't have any leader, Oh, this is such a spontaneous protest. We don't, we don't even have any plan. And the Nigerian youth just gathered without any warning. And I'm like, you know, in hindsight, I mean, I did know that, but we are also trying to kind of ha continue having a conversation of, you know, we, we shouldn't be going on things like this without planning. And in a situation like the NSAS protest, where it basically happened, nobody thought the protest would, you know, materialized way did, we should have really invested way more of our energy into trying to plan ahead for what the Nigerian government is going to do as a response because obviously it was only a matter of time before they you know crack down violently on protesters. So yeah. No, that there's always that threat, like you said, of of this like liberal kind of reformist uh, takeover of a radical movement and and everything you said too about sanctions and the attempt to appeal uh, to the United States when you know as you said the U.S. is the the leading force of of white supremacy and police brutality around the world uh, is is very hypocritical. I'm curious just on the very last note of of NSARS and then we can move on uh, to a different topic. But I guess where do you see it going from here? What gains have been made by the movement? What has what has it changed and what have been the failures? And then kind of what's the future of it? Will there be more uh, of a mass movement continuing or has it kind of died down now? Yeah, so it's really remains to be seen. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not really sure. I mean, I want to believe that, you know, we are going to build on this, but at the same time, we, you know, I, we are, we are still trying to have that conversation. I don't really know how you know, far we are going, but we are, we are trying our best because this uh, uh, protest movement was a lot of, it, it was many people's introduction into like activism and into like protest and into movement building. And a lot of people have been radicalized by it. So it remains on us to consolidate and build up 
on that. Currently, within Quest, we are continuing to build. There are also a lot of organizations like currently uh, under SWL, we are working with CORE on you know, a political education program trying to uh, kind of provide political education for left-wing forces to basically build our cadres and deepen you know, ideological development within our own ranks. And I feel like that kind of um, preparation will make it so that when we are faced with something like this again, we are going to be better prepared on how to you know, consolidate on what we have built previously. Because Nigeria has always shown you know, a history of revolutionary struggle, but it seems that we, we still haven't gotten to a place where we take it from moves, you know, from just the beginnings of a movement to a revolutionary force that is able to, you know, bring about the success of the revolution. So I feel like that's part of the, you know, that part of the building is what we are still basically trying to figure out. And what we are basically, you know, educating ourselves to be better prepared for. So, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, we can only hope uh, in the future that it continues to be a mass movement and, and also that it continues to be a radical movement. And I, I'd like to relate that to the subject of your work in, 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 you know, as you were talking about another area of queer liberation and being against homophobia in Nigeria. And how do you make this movement and the group that you were able to start in Nigeria uh, an overtly radical group connecting it to the problems as you were talking about before of uh, of decolonization of uh, you know legal discrimination against uh, queer Nigerians. So I'd love to know more about how you relate the ideas of Marxism as well to queer liberation in Nigeria. Yeah. So first um, is a very openly radical organization. So our um, documents, our principal pillars, we, you know, we state, uh, we define ourselves as Pan-Africanists, as abolitionists, as, you know, people who believe in Pan-Africanism and, you know, who believe Pan-Africanism to be the unity of Africa under revolutionary socialism. And so it's, is in such a way that you know we understand that the conditions of oppression that exists under where that you know uh, oppressed where people is something that cannot really be um, how would I say we we can't uh, get ourselves out of it through just legal reforms. And the reason for this is that the conditions that exist in Nigeria is that of peripheral capitalism. So our position under global capitalism isn't that of, you know, let's say the United States or, you know, other countries where people have, um, you know, a higher, like a, a large kind of number of middle class people where there is more like university education and things like that. So the thing here is that because of Nigeria's um, position under the global capitalist system, the only way that we can actually liberate ourselves is to break away from Western imperialism. We cannot achieve our liberation. There, there can't be anywhere liberation under, <laughs> under conditions of imperial domination. It's just not possible. And because of that, we are very, like, you know, blatantly anti-imperialist. And our anti-imperialism and our pan-Africanism are linked because we, we, it's not really so possible for us to achieve our independence from Western imperialism alone as an individual African country. The only way that we can have African countries that are you know, uh, uh, independence from Western hegemony that are building towards socialism and are thriving as they build towards socialism is when we have, you know, other African countries around these providing 
that backrest so that we, we are not isolated. And so that's why we really believe in Pan-Africanism because our, our conditions as you know, colonized people are, is very linked. The same institutions that you know, uh, is basically imposing these neoliberal uh, uh, dictates on our governments. You know, they are the same. The our we share we basically we literally share colo we literally share for our colo colonial masters. Literally, like in West Africa, for instance, is basically France and Britain. Like almost, I mean, there are some exceptions, but that's basically like the vast majority of us and because of that shared history and that shared struggle we share a, a developmental process and it is true uh, uh having a more uh fleshed out theory of queer liberation a theory that isn't based on you know quote-unquote just lgbt rights but that is based on understanding queer liberation as total liberation as a liberation that is you know uh, uh, includes the abolition of every form of oppression that affects us as african people so that includes imperialism that includes um you know uh, 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 sorry the poverty the uh, tri tribal discrimination the discrimination against trans people you know misogyny ableism all these things they are all interconnected oppression isn't um oppression isn't individual things that are you know existing you know individually on their own it's all it's all together in one mass of interconnected mutually reinforcing structure so this uh, uh, uh the way we kind of um the way we view the revolutionary process is that where people need to take and understand that because of the position we hold as being an antithesis to colonialism in Africa, being the people who are oppressed under Western uh, imposed gender systems, under cis heteronormative culture, we literally form the antithesis to the new colony. And because of that, it is our job or it is our historical task, basically, to continue to advance that what's the only thing that can actually, you know, liberate Africa as a continent is revolutionary socialism. It is a system where we as African people are united under an ideology that understands that we cannot be free unless we break from imperialism, unless we create a world that is multipolar, that, you know, we don't have a quote-unquote world police like the United States that come to tell us, oh, this is, this is what you should do, this is how it should be, and things like that. And we, we are also living through the consequences of, you know, that system, even in the uh, moral policing that the countries like the United States are wanting to do. After the uh, Obama administration, you know, issued threats to the um, Nigerian government on, oh, it should, it better not pass the, uh, what's it called, the homophobic law that wasn't, you know, going through at that time. It's, if it passes it, there's going to be like backlash, there's going to be this. And we, we saw a very huge rise of homophobic violence. We saw a huge rise of people Ordinary Nigerians basically tying queerness to imperialism because that's basically what it, it became. It became that, oh, the people that are even pushing this here are literally the people that are also subjugating us. And because of that, we as queer people on the continent, we need to do that work of, you know, fighting pinkwashing of imperialism and being like, no, you, you, you can't come and pretend like, you know, you are doing this for us. Like, let's be clear, you are basically throwing a bone to your democratic base to, you know, be like, oh, look, we we are leading the world on where on LGBT rights or some other like, you know, talking point that they have Why contributing zero materially. So there needs, that is the kind of conversation we are pushing because we understand that you, you, you can't really have a where 
movement that exists in isolation for a from a national liberation movement. The movement to liberate where lives is one and the same with the movement to for national liberation for Africa. It's one and the same with the you know the, the fight to decolonize our countries from Western control. So these are the linkages and these are how we kind of synthesize a revolutionary theory of how we can actually win our freedom. No, that was a very comprehensive answer. And, and that was a great summary of how to connect the problems of, of ongoing colonialism, neocolonialism within Africa to the mission uh, of Quest as an organization. My, my next question, and, and after this, I only have one or two left, but I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more specifically about Nigeria with respect to the neocolonialism going on in the nation. So, you know, how do foreign, particularly American multinational companies come in and dominate the country? How do organizations like the IMF and the World Bank run the show, if you want to talk more about that? Yeah, so um, the Nigerian system is very keen on these uh, public-private partnership schemes. So basically, the government kind of uh, partners with foreign corporations to, you know, mine resources to, you know, things like that. So um, a lot of the time, all these. Uh, um, agro-businesses and oil multinationals, they basically come and they, you know, destroy people's natural, like natural environment, they uh, take up people's land. And because of the way that the system is set up, where basically the Land Use Act gives control of the land to the governor of the particular state, it's very easy for the governor to just basically like, you know, land grab from a swath of communities and basically give to whether it's agro-businesses that want to start plantations or you know, uh, 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 industrial farm or things like that, or it's land developers, or we're talking of you know, oil interests, mining interests, you know, things like that. And a lot of the time, it's also about um, you know, how much dependence this creates for the Nigerian economy. Take uh, oil, for instance, on the, the, the um, foreign multinationals have like 88%, they own like 88% of oil blocks in the country, the last I checked. And what you have is a system where all the Nigerian government collects is, you know, the rent on this and uh, the profit sharing profit sharing scheme it has with these companies. And because of that one, we have a situation where we are not developing technologically because the people, these people, they're coming here with their own technological know-how and they do nothing to actually help the country develop technologically. The technological uh, skills remain with them. And anytime they decide to leave, they just pack up both their equipment, their everything, they basically control all of that. Production of equipment, production of, you know, uh, the maintenance, whatever, everything is them. Everything is controlled by them. And then there's also that uh, small part of, you know, our country that like also have like, you know, 88%, the many 12% of people that have oil and gas, that have, you know, US funders, funders Wall Street and, you know, the, London Stock Exchange and the rest of that. And so it's a situation where Nigerians don't actually own anything in the economy. Like ordinary Nigerians are living in a state of precarity. We are not only are they, you know, living in an informal economy with not no wage structure, with no pension plan for people that are not in civil service, with no like insurance schemes to protect them, with no mechanism for the government to you know, enforce labor regulations. And also we have a situation where the government basically is uh, 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 a skeleton of the state, basically. Because at this point, it doesn't really have an economic base. 
at all. It does not have an economic base. The people who control our economy, they exist completely different from the people who get into government. And they basically, um, it, it basically happens that they either get, you know, decide, okay, let me just run and continue to make sure that I maintain my economic interest or let me fund someone that will run and get in there and continue to maintain my economic interest. Ordinary Nigerian people have zero stakes. They hold no stakes over their own economic realities. We have people, I remember when you know I was much younger, my mom, my mom's shop was taken together with about, I think it was 850 shops and given to a property developer you know, to build, like, develop kind of like a, an ultra-modern shopping complex or something like that. And surprise, surprise, the developer was funded by one, like, VC in Wall Street. <laughs> so it's, it's, always, it's always a situation where when you actually look deep into who owns the Nigerian economy, it's not Nigerians. It's white people, and it's a very select few of collab of you know collabor local collaborators who basically you know join those western people to control our whole economy and i feel like we we, we are not we are looking at a situation where there, there is no development happening there's no economic development happening and this is not surprising because it has happened is in such a way that again we are a peripheral capitalist country you look we come into our communities we don't have electricity we don't have, um, you know, a, a, a proper water supply, no proper gas supplies, nothing. And it's because of that, even if you decided as, let's say, an entrepreneur, let me start a business, for instance, you have very little chance of succeeding. So the whole as, you know, capitalist competition is going to create development isn't even working because the situation that exists make it, makes it so that the only people that can succeed economically are people who are already ultra wealthy. It creates a monopoly situation in even things that are not supposed to be monopolies at all. So there is no benefits to the capitalism that exists here. There is no economic development the way you see, you know, in Western capitalist countries. It's a situation where the whole uh quote unquote benefits of capitalism it's it's not possible anymore in nigeria and so that's that's what's going on at this point yeah that it, it's horrible to hear and like you said uh you know it's the continuing problem of of the peripheralization of nigeria but as you were describing earlier the increased radicalization um, is definitely leading to, along with like a focus on anti-colonialism, uh, a movement to push back against that, which is inspiring to see. Uh, I just have one more question. I'm, I'm curious about the reaction uh, in Nigeria to uh, the crisis in, in Ukraine. And, and I was going to ask as well about, uh, I know there's been a lot of discussion about the uh, refugee crisis in Ukraine, particularly with uh, Nigerian refugees. Um, so I'm, I'm curious about the reaction domestically to that um, and that situation. So the, um, initially there was a lot of, uh, I would say that maybe a split, you know, some people understand the logic of, you know, uh, the, the, it's, it's basically a, we understand how a country is going to, feel threatened when it's being surrounded by weapons. So that's number one. But at the same time, there are also a lot of people that are, you know, all international law and the rest of that. And so there is that like, there's just a general understanding that Russia invading Ukraine is bad for the Ukrainian people. It's, it's, very, it's a very horrible situation. Millions of people are being displaced. A lot of people are being killed. But at the same time, because of the, um, you know, the more uh, 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 openness of the media that exists now, you know, it's not like the Iraq war when, you know, the media was much more controlled. We didn't really have social media like we have now. So we, we are 
literally watching people like blog the racism they are experiencing as they try to get out of Ukraine. We are seeing reports of you know uh, um, fascism and the neo-Nazi groups that are you know like militias and the rest of that. And at the same time, the we we don't really appreciate a lot of Nigerians don't appreciate being like uh, uh, basically uh, backed at by Western countries and told what to do. If you look at the, our our government's response, for instance, it has been very much like you know under the radar, it's, you know, voted for the resolution to condemn Russia's invasion of, you know, the Ukrainian crisis, but there hasn't really been any more, like, you know, it's being out there or whatever. It just, like, voted for that and it's, like, who went back to minding its business? So that has really been, because I feel like for a lot of African countries, there is still that, um, when I say trauma, <laughs> towards NATO countries. I mean, these are literally the people that colonized us. And so, you know, Russia is literally one of the people that was literally willing to sell us weapons to fight our colonial, like, masters. So it, 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 it very much has led to a situation where Africans are more concerned with stopping the war and they are more concerned with anything that would lead to the war stopping, as opposed to, you know, the more kind of uh, a Western narrative of, oh, like Russia has no rights to say what Ukraine can and can't join. Because, you know, I feel like to the liberal mind that might make sense, but Africans don't really have a good opinion of NATO. So it's, I mean, we, we, watch, we literally watched them destroy Libya, like in real time. And they told us that, oh, um, they're just going to go there and they're going to stop this dictator and Libyans will have freedom. And it's been war in Libya ever since then. Like literally, it is still today, they are still fighting. And we, we, we can see that. We can literally see that. And it's not to say that, you know, a lot of Africans don't have criticisms of, you know, uh, Gaddafi's regime. You know, Afri uh, Nigeria was one of the countries that was really opposed to Gaddafi's Libya because, you know, again, Nigeria is a very anti-communist country and, you know, any, anything that is deviating from capitalism at all is, <laughs> is already like a red flag. And especially in the context of Africa, where Nigeria is a regional power. So it, it was a very much, it was a very much a regional, like, enemies, basically, between the Nigerian government and the Libyan government. So even at the time of the invasion, Nigerians didn't even really so much have a good opinion of the Libyan government. But at the same time, how is a forever war, a war that has lasted for, I mean, 2014 to 2022, years, how is that a better alternative for the people of Libya or for anyone at all? So we, we, we look at that. And because of that, you, you have seen African countries basically, and African people generally, basically take a non, a, a more nuanced stance of, you know, I mean, Russia invading Ukraine is horrible for Ukrainians. It is, and you know, it, it, it's a disruption of the life of innocent people that basically should not even have been dragged into this conflict at all. But at the same time, we also have to look at what actually brought us to this place. Why are we here? Why, why is Russia invading Ukraine? Why are we getting to a situation where we are entering a war again? And how do we get out of it? Because when you say things like, you know, you look at what is being mentioned in, you know, Western press, and I'm talking about, oh, a, a no-fly zone, and I'm like, do, do, do you people really want the war? Do you want actual nuclear war? Like, I, I mean, do you get? So it's a situation where I feel like Africans are more concerned about stopping the conflict than about who is right, about, you know, the principles of international law or whatever, like other talking points that Western media, like talking heads have. Like, how do we actually bring an end to this conflict that is displacing millions of people? How do we actually bring an end to this conflict so that we can save a lot of lives that would have died if the conflict continues? And we can also, if because 
it, it, it won't just stop here. There is a food crisis on the horizon with this conflict. And the last time Russia had, you know, a lot of, the last time Russia had failed grain, like pro, uh, productivity, it led to food shortages in Northern Africa because a lot of Northern African countries, they depend on Russia for their grain imports. This crisis is going to affect the availability of food on the continent. And that is what we are even like more focused on as opposed to like, oh, it is, does Ukraine have the right to join NATO? Which is like <laughs> a wild ass even statement to begin with. Because I mean, what, what even is the right to join a white supremacist military alliance? What even, do you get, what even does that mean at all? So, yeah. That was a really, really good answer to that question and and i agree with pretty much everything you said um and the the food crisis on the horizon is a really big point that i think a lot of people are not thinking about at all right now but you know will start to become very relevant uh, in addition to fuel crisis that is already kind of having an impact um so i, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time uh to talk to me for for this time for this hour um, my last kind of point that I want to ask you about is uh, any book or any reading suggestion that you have for people who are interested in the topics that you that you covered or anything that you read that got you into uh, Marxism, that got you into socialism uh, or, or queer liberation and anything worth reading about like the situation in Nigeria as well. Uh, yeah, so... Um... One book I would really recommend for people that are interested in Africa is um, Cloud Ake's A Political Economy of Africa. So I think that book is really important because of how it really analyzes the efforts to build Africa post-colonization. Not only does it look at how colonialism pillaged and destroyed our economies, you know, disrupted it, disintegrated it, and made it so that it's, you know, uh, as opposed to having an, a national economy that was disintegrated, we had national economies that were just, you know, splintered into different parts. And just the only thing that they cared about was getting their goods straight to the coast. That was all they cared about as they quote unquote, developed our countries. And so only did it have, you know, critically analyze that, but it also talked about the development efforts that have gone on in Africa and why those have failed to break us out of colonialism, including, including those that are socialist efforts. So it's, it's really analyzed Countries like, you know, Tanzania, for instance, countries like Nkrumah's Ghana that actually did try to break away from socialism and the deficiencies, if any, that those efforts had. Because I feel like not only does it give a better context to the current struggle that we are having now, but it also kind of uh, uh, helps us as we basically synthesize a revolutionary theory for how actually do we get free. So there is that. And, you know, there's also, uh, uh, um, I, I take a lot of, uh, of my readings from, you know, uh, well liberation organizations in Palestine. One of them is our cause. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this properly. A-L- Q A W S, and because you know it, it's kind of there's a lot of similarities in the situation that exists in Palestine for the poor people there, where you have, you know, you you have a situation where you are fighting against a colonial imposition, and at the same time you have a situation where you are fighting against your own people, and you have to kind of find a way to forge out a line that continues to support uh, 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 you know, national liberation and ties your own freedom to the national liberation struggle. Because again, you cannot have, you cannot have federal liberation under, colon, uh, under conditions 
of colonization it's just it's just not feasible it's not possible and so i think you know you can i think you can follow them online they have some uh uh english articles one of the one of the activists that work with them also wrote a book i've forgotten the name of the book now but <laughs> i can you know try to find it and send and send it over to you so yeah well, thanks so much. That I would absolutely love if you, if you send that over to me. And uh, and those other uh, recommendations are great. I've heard of Claudia K before um, and haven't read it, but I will definitely read it now. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for for taking the time to speak with me. And uh, and this is a fantastic conversation uh, with everything about learned a lot about NSARS and and Quest as well as an organization. So I'll definitely stay in touch. Um, we can continue. The discussion and i'll also send this to you uh once it's been posted but thank you so much i really appreciate it oh yeah sure you're welcome awesome well thanks so much have a great rest of your day yeah bye